But let's agree, nobody wins on a dead planet. And we're killing this planet as we know it. I don't think the planet will ever really die, but we're killing life as we know it on this planet. And we need to agree on that, and we need to agree that we're going to turn it around. We need to agree that we're going to end the death economy and transform it into a life economy. And that's, so that's the reason I wrote the book. That's acclaimed U.S. author John Perkins. I'm Robert McLean, and this is the latest episode of Climate Conversations. I'm your host. Welcome. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. And I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Perkins is known to readers all around the world for his book, The Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And that's what we talk with him about today. So let's have a listen to that conversation. Uh, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate that. It's wonderful. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. John, can you give me a brief explanation of what an economic hitman is and what he or she does? Well, I think it's fair to say that we economic hitmen created what we can consider to be what many economists call a death economy, an economic system that's uh, failing us. It's based on the idea of maximizing short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. And it's created a situation where we're basically consuming ourselves into extinction, you know, consuming the very resources in the short term upon which we depend for the long term. And uh, you know, the way we economic hitmen worked in my day, and it's, it's been changing over time, I consider that we are part of the first wave. And that first wave, um, we would... Uh, Identify my job was to identify a country with resources that had a country with resources that our corporations covet, like oil, and then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. But the money never actually went to the country, instead, it went to our own corporations to build big infrastructure projects in the country, things like power plants and industrial parks and ports and highways things that made the companies that built them, our companies, wealthy, <laughs> gave, gave big profits, and also helped a few rich people in the receiving country, uh, the people that own the industries and the banks and the commercial centers that, that benefited from more electricity, better highways, and so forth. But the majority of the people suffered because money was diverted from health, education, other social services to pay off the, the loans on the debt. And again, it all went toward creating this a situation that maximizes short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs, the death economy. I was going to ask you, can you briefly explain the difference between the death economy and what you call the living economy? Yeah, so the death economy, is, as I've said, is based on short -term, maximizing short-term profits and materialistic consumption. And it... Uh, it uh, has, has created this situation that results in um, climate change, income inequality, species extinctions. Uh, most all of the crises that we face today are basically symptoms of this death economy. They're not actually the problem, <laughs> they're the symptoms of the problem. Uh, a life economy, on the other hand, is an economic system that's based on the goal of maximizing long-term benefits for all life. People, plants, nature, 
all of us. And it would pay it pays people to clean up pollution, to regenerate destroyed environments, to recycle, to develop new technologies that that don't ravage the earth anymore. You know, when you come right down down to it, uh, Robert, we we really don't need to keep digging up more minerals. John, you talk about you know chat you had with fellow U.S. author Howard Zinn, and you and he was trying to comfort you over your the guilt you feel. And he said, we are all guilty and we've allowed ourselves to be duped and so we are guilty by implication. So how do you feel about that observation? Well, I think it's absolutely true, Robert. We, 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 are, all, we, we are all guilty. Uh, you know, we're, we're all victims of this death economy, but the, we're also collaborators. We buy into it. You know, we've, we've accepted that we want to maximize uh, our consumption. You know, this you know, this, uh, I don't know in Australia, but in the United States, there used to be a bumper sticker that went around that the person who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> you know, it's, kind of, it's kind of this, this attitude of, that we have. And, and we're, all, we're, we're all victims of, of that, but, and, we're, and we're also all collaborators. So we all got to take responsibility and recognize that all of the system is based on us as the consumers, the investors, the workers, and the management in these corporations that uh, are promoting the system. So what do you think Zinn means when he says we will do anything to maintain the system that has failed us? Well, he, he means exactly that, that, that we, you know, we, 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 we have really justified this every chance we get, you know, I mean, there's people that deny climate, there's people that say that species extinctions are just part of the, what goes on and income inequality is because people who don't have as much income don't work hard enough or, or whatever. Uh, we, we find justifications, you know, you and I probably and all your listeners justify driving cars or flying in airplanes or, you know, we find justifications for all these things. And some of those justifications are deserved. I mean, they're, they're, they're correct. Like, you know, like if you, if you, going to drive in a car or fly in an airplane to actually convince a lot of people that they've got to change and, and, it, and it has a positive impact. You could say it's a benefit cost analysis is I realize every time I get in an airplane to go speak at some, some place uh, I'm, uh, I'm contributing to the problem, but so th- that's a cost. It's a huge cost, but the benefit, so I have to measure, well, the benefit, am I going to be speaking to enough people that may, and may be able to convince them to come around? You know, we all do this. And now we're doing it virtually, which saves some jet fuel. But let's face it, you know, that the cloud takes a lot of energy also. So we, we've all bought into this system to a certain degree. And uh, the good news is that it's, it's all based on a perception, a perception of maximization of short-term profits and materialistic consumption which really isn't bringing a great deal of joy to most people. You know, we get joy from, from other things. We get joy from our relationships with each other. We get joy from our relationship with nature. Of course, uh, we don't want to be hungry or don't have a house or clothes, but that's to, for, for probably most of your listeners, that's not a big issue. You've written about the relationship between China and the U.S. And in one of those strategies, strategies you talked about for solving the problems we have. Um, you said they were interrupted by two world-changing events like COVID and the invasion of Ukraine. So how do we navigate those dramas and at the same time repair the world? 
Well, I think, you know, yeah, I have a book coming out in February of 2023, which deals specifically with China's economic hitmen and the way they've learned from the successes and the failures of people like me and U.S. economic hitmen and, and have really reached a point now where they're, where they're dominating most of the world economically. Uh, and, you know, as I was writing about those issues at, in, in, the, in the past, over the past couple of years, suddenly we get COVID and we get the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. I think COVID has taught us a number of things. One of them is that uh, nature's speaking through very tiny forms, too. It's, you know, it's not just about fires and hurricanes. It's about microscopic uh, 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 viruses <laughs> that are there uh, that, that we're being told that the system isn't working but also COVID has taught us that it truly is global that this is not a local problem so even though you know if we might know that a hurricane is caused by um, climate change but if I get hit by a hurricane, I'm probably going to look at it pretty locally. I'm going to look at it and say, gee, you know, well, I survived the hurricane, if I did. Uh, and now the outside world will come to my rescue with water and food and help me rebuild. So even though I may know it's connected to a bigger issue, I see it locally. But COVID has taught us that uh, we're all impacted. Every every form of life on this planet, one way or another, has been impacted by this tiny microscopic virus. It's also taught us that we can change, and we can even enjoy the changes. And and this isn't to uh, in any way uh, negate the suffering that people have gone through, and the deaths, and the loss of of loved ones, and so forth. But it is to say that a lot of people learned that they could change significantly and could gain from it, could to, to you know, read that book they always wanted to read or write that book they wanted to write, learn to play the flute or, or, or whatever it is. Um, and uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has taught us that although we, we, we thought the Cold War was over, we thought that the struggle of, over military was pretty much ending, there were limited wars, and we knew that, and that a lot of it was done through economics, through economic hitmen. The competition was done through that. But Russia's invasion has taught us that the massive war and, and the, the threat of nuclear holocaust is still very much with us. It's also taught us the importance, as COVID has, of, of coming together, uh, uniting against a, a common threat. John, there's a couple of questions out of that. One, why did... Why did you change from the, the values you had to what you have now? You know, I think I always had the values. I think I grew up, I grew up with values that said materialism was not the most important thing. My parents were teachers. They, they very much stressed that they could have made a lot more money doing something else, but that they really loved what they did. And they, they, they thought that they were bringing, you know, education to people, helping young people. Um, and, when I became an economic hitman, I was chief economist, was my official title. I thought we were doing the right thing because business school had taught me and the World Bank and, and everyone else was promoting the idea that investing large amounts of money in poor countries helps those countries' economies grow. And statistically, you can show that it does. So when we measure things by gross domestic product, which is, it turns out, a lousy measure, uh, but that's the one that's used. We show that when we invest money into big infrastructure projects, 
uh, economies grow. Uh, and so I believe this. I thought what I was doing at the beginning was was the right thing. I was helping countries. Uh, but over time, I began to see that GDP, gross domestic product, uh, really only measures how well the rich are doing. And as an example, Robert, in the United States, <laughs> there's three individuals that have as much wealth as as half the half the population. It's pretty those, scary, isn't it? Yeah, it's but if those three individuals made 10% on their wealth last year and and half the population lost 3% and the rest of the population remained the same, the, the overall growth rate would be over 3%, close to 4%. It would look as though everybody prospered, but the fact of the matter would was that only three people prospered. Now, if that's true in the United States, where three individuals have as much wealth as half the country, what do you think about countries where three individuals have as much wealth, three families have as much wealth as 95% of the country? And so I began to see that these measures we were using, our metrics, uh, were wrong. They were very skewed to the rich. And that's when I began to turn things around. So I don't think so much that my values changed as that my perception of what was going on changed, my understanding of, of, of the way we were looking at things and the way we were promoting things changed. And then I had a couple of moments of, of this, what you might call epiphanies where this, this really came down uh, on me hard. But, uh, you know, I don't think so, as I said, I don't think it's much change of values as much a change of, of insight. Yeah. So, so is change happening among countries as well? Do you think Are we seeing some co- combination of change among con- among countries? <laughs> well, we've certainly seen huge changes. Uh, we, I mean, we've in, in the United States we've seen a radical change uh, in the last uh, in the last decade. You know. I, I, President Trump coming to office and the, the Supreme Court we have in this country now has created a, a situation which is which is dysfunctional. Our Congress is dysfunctional. Uh, our laws seem to be dysfunctional. Our Supreme Court, is, is, I, people call it a conservative court. I don't think it's a conservative court. I think it's a radicalized court. It's a politicized court. Uh, and I, we've had conservative courts in the past, and, and they've been they've been fair. They've, they they you know they 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 try to do things judiciously, even though they're balanced toward conservative outlooks. This court, or at least the three of its key members, are, are radicals, and they're, they're politicized. So we've seen these changes in the United States, and we've seen just a huge amount of guns that people own, and and the, uh, indiscriminate killings of people. And we've also seen huge changes in China. Uh, uh, where we've seen uh, since 1970s, since the mid-1970s, China has brought more, about 800 million people out of dire poverty. And it's had an average 10% economic growth for three decades. No other country has ever, has ever done that. So it's, it's, it's had this incredible change in that direction. At the same time, the United States, we have not had a real increase in wages, if you take into account inflation, since 1973. And our percentage of the middle class has gone from 60% of our population to 50%. So we've seen these changes. And Australia, I'm sure, has seen a lot of changes. And every, every country has seen many, many changes, for sure. But I mentioned the two, the United States and, and uh, China, because they're particularly significant in that they 
together they, they make up about 45% of the global economy is when you measure by GDP. And they make up about 45% of all the, the serious pollution that we have on this planet. These two countries, China and the United States. So uh, these the changes that occur in these two countries affect everybody in a sense. John, you're right about the economic hitman strategies as uh, uh, solving things like uh, stop communism, they end poverty, they encourage democracy, when in fact it was sort of doing the reverse of those things and among those things causing climate change or climate catastrophe. So why are we still addicted to those strategies? Well, perception, right? So what, you know, what, yeah, what I said is we our perception is such an important thing in policies, you know, this. Throughout history, we've had these perceptions that have driven domination, the perception that, oh, we have to make everyone Christian in order to, so that they can go to heaven. Uh, you know, we, we have to stop the savages uh, because they're, they're, they're driven by Satan. Uh, we've had these perceptions. And, uh, you know, our perception uh, in recent years has been that, that, that uh, the strategies of the that create the death economy are are the right ones so that 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 you know all of our ideas of maximizing profits uh milton friedman probably was made a, made the biggest statement in that regard he won the nobel prize in 1976 in economics and his his most important statement was and i'm paraphrasing but it was essentially uh all business needs to do is maximize short-term profits regardless of the social and environmental costs. When we maximize short-term profits, Milton Friedman said, uh, we'll take care of all the other problems. It just wasn't true. It was, but it was a perception that we bought into and stayed with ever since. You write about the new breed of the 21st century economic, economic hitman. Can you tell me about them? Yeah, so this is what I would call the second wave. So, you know, my, I was kind of generic. I wanted to bring in lots of money for American businesses, and I didn't really care whether Bechtel or Halliburton or General Electric or somebody else got the big contracts, as long as we get a piece of it. That was our consulting firm. But this second wave has been... Um, People, so we still have that first wave, but in addition, every major corporation has its own economic hitmen. Uh, so, you know, a great example in the United States was shown not too long ago when Amazon pitted different cities in the United States against each other to see who would get the next big Amazon facility. And what they, they sent their economic hitmen in to tell, you know, hey, New York, hey, Atlanta. Hey, whatever. If you uh, give us a good deal on wage rates and uh, and don't make us pay taxes or reduce the taxes, we'll go to you. And but this goes on all over the world. So corporations are constantly going to places like Indonesia and 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 uh, the Philippines and Thailand and saying, "Hey, you know, we'll build a big factory in your country if you'll give us tax breaks and wage breaks." So these economic hitmen. And uh, are doing that, and a lot of them come out of the in the United States. They come out of our Congress. They're 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 former senators or representatives in the House of Representatives, um, who when they lose the election or they decide not to do that anymore, they become um, consultants or lobbyists or advisors. 
And uh, they make a lot of money doing those. Uh, and so that's really the second wave where we've gone from sort of the generic version to still having the generic version. But in addition, every major corporation has the, and it's, it's not just U.S. corporations, it's Chinese corporations, it's Australian corporations. Every, yeah, we've got them here too. Yeah. yeah, every major international corporation. Yeah. What success do you believe your books are having in advancing the idea that we should shift from what you describe as the death economy? Well, my books are obviously going to change the world. <laughs> they are, are they? Oh, good. <laughs> well, I'm don't I wish? That. Don't I wish? <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, I think, um, unfortunately, things got worse since my first book on economic hitmen was published in 2004, uh, and they continue to get worse. So, I, you know, but I, <laughs> I don't know. But I do, I do hear from a lot of people, including corporate executives, including people at the World Bank, that by reading my books, they've, 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 they've understood something that they might have suspected before. But now they've, they've heard it from the voice of someone who was involved in it. And so it's woken them up. So, you know, books, Robert, uh, take a while. Uh, they take a while, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and and uh, it's one of the reasons why authors usually don't get assassinated uh, like politicians, because politicians make things happen fast. So people like John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy and and, uh, you know, and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and, and others, uh, they, they are a real immediate threat, whereas authors aren't looked that way. But over time books and, and the, and the spinoffs from books and, the, and the, like this program and these sorts of things, they, they have an impact. We've got to, that's why we keep doing it. At least we got to hope have an impact. <laughs> got to hope for the best. Robert Kennedy was quite opposed to the GDP. So you'd be a fan of his, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, the original Robert Kennedy, yes, uh, the, mm. the brother of John Kennedy, the attorney general. Um, yeah. He was a pretty amazing, amazing man. I think he, he said a lot of very uh, insightful things and, and, and was very powerful and was a, also a man of action. I think it's important that we recognize that we, we, need to, uh, we need to spread the word. We need to be writers and talkers and so on, but we also need to take action. That's very important. I'm early in your new book, and I've read the, uh, some, the manuscript for your new book, so I've read part of it, so... But you say, my hope is by the time you finish this book, you'll be inspired to participate in a new era of global cooperation that redefines what it means to be a successful human being living on this planet. Now, this book has just been published, I think, or is about to be published. So what do you expect success would look like? Well, the, the book will be published in, in February uh, uh, 2023. Um and you know i'm i'm the the real point of the book is that uh the united states and china are as i mentioned earlier the biggest economies in the world they combine they're almost half of the world's economy and half of the world's pollution almost half uh, we need they need to come together uh, to change this we, we we must turn this around if we're to survive as a species we must transform the death economy to a life economy. And to make that happen, China and the United States can disagree on everything else. We can disagree on the Uyghurs and, and, they, and, they, can just, and they, they can continue to criticize the way we treat the American Indians and, and, and others. And we can disagree on, on Taiwan and, and they can disagree about the way we behave in Afghanistan and other places. 
uh, we can disagree on cultural things, religious things, everything, but let's agree that nobody wins on a dead planet. And we're killing this planet as we know it. I don't think the planet will ever really die, but we're killing life as we know it on this planet. And we need to agree on that. And we need to agree that we're going to turn it around. We need to agree that we're going to end the death economy and transform it into a life economy. And that's, so that's the reason I wrote the book is to try to bring out what's going on and also to let people like in the United States and I suspect in Australia and many other places understand that it's not a question of when will China take over. It's to understand that China has taken over. China is the number one investor, the number one uh, marketer, the one num number one salesperson in, on every continent. It's no longer the United States or the, uh, or the uh, British Empire, <laughs> so to speak. Or it's China. They have taken over. Uh, that doesn't mean they, they'll always maintain that position, but but to realize that that has happened, that they have become an incredibly strong powerhouse with a lot of appeal to poor countries. Their model is very appealing to poor countries. And ultimately, we need to understand that and we need to understand that we must not see them as the enemy. As I said, we can disagree on many things, but let's see them as, as fellow human beings whose survival is threatened and that the two our two countries are threatening the survival of the of, of life on this planet as we know it. John, neoliberalism has played the long game, and from what I can understand, it started way back in 1940 or something way back then. So what do we have to do to dis dislodge it from our thinking and our, our behaviour? Yeah, well, neoliberalism, basically, you know, it promotes uh, uh, privatisation, it, 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 it wants to get rid of taxes on the rich and taxes on corporations, and it wants to get rid of government regulations. And it makes it basically what it, that neoliberal, neoliberal economics is really about giving more and more power to big corporations, what we call the corporatocracy. It's uh, been extremely successful at doing that. And it, it, again, and I was one of the people that helped make that happen. That's what economic hitmen do is promote that. And the second wave promoted even more than the first wave. Uh, and so we, 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 we must turn that around. And much of the world already sees that that is not the, uh, the route to success. China, China has made it very clear that they did not grow their economy based on neoliberalism. They've been quite the opposite. Yeah. John, was the term economic hitman something that you came up with or had you read that before? The woman who trained me, uh, Claudine, who I write about, used it. And, and uh, I, I said, well, I never heard that term before. And she said, well, no, nobody has hardly, except a few of us who are in the business. We use it kind of tongue in cheek. It's sort of like spook. You know, a CIA agent doesn't call himself a spook. doesn't even call himself a spy. Mm. He calls himself a you know, the, the commercial attache at the U.S. Embassy or some such thing. And <laughs> we don't, economic hitmen don't call themselves economic hitmen. It's a tongue-in-cheek expression. We call ourselves, in my case, chief economist or, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, so, uh, she, I, but she first used that term, and I think it's an extremely appropriate one, frankly. Yeah. I read about a place called Ostrava. Ostrava, I think it's called Ostrava. Mm -hmm. I honestly can't remember much about it. Can you explain something to me about that? Because it moved from being a death to a life economy. Yeah, Ostrava is the way they pronounce it. It's in it's in uh, it's in the Czech Republic. It's a it was a major city, 
In fact, it was called the steel, the heart of the, the steel heart of the Soviet Union. Oh, that's right. It's all coming back to me. Yeah, <laughs> back when the Soviet keep, Union keep, keep was, going. was the Soviet Union. Uh, a great deal of steel came from Ostrava. And what it was, was it was a huge coal mine there. And on top of that coal mine, or right next to the coal mine, was this gigantic steel mill that used the coal to produce steel. And then about the, about the time the Soviet Union was falling apart, uh, they ran out of coal. And and over the years, the town became almost a ghost town. You know, it, it lost its economy. Uh, and the coal, of course, coal and steel and mining the earth represents the death economy. And the fact that they have used up all their resources in the short term. Uh, so the long term, they failed. But the people of Ostrava came together and they created a life economy. They turned these old, this huge structure, the steel mill, into a magnificent performing arts center. Uh, and, you know, for uh, the biggest auditorium there is built in this huge building that was once a tank, gigantic tank, and now it's a very luxurious auditorium. And so I've spoken uh, before the pandemic, I spoke there at, at, at two different events. Each one had about 50,000 people. These were music festivals that also had a, <laughs> had a spot set aside for speakers like me to talk about world events. And there were a lot of great speakers there. And, and, and it's amazing, you know, these young people and all people, but especially the young people would come in to hear the wonderful music, but they'd also take a break and listen to someone talking about the means of transforming death to a life economy. So it's a real great example of how you can turn a failed economic venture, that's coal mine, steel mill that's, that's failed, and, and turn it into something that's beautiful and that, that doesn't, and, and that is all about making life better rather than making it worse, and about teaching about the power of music and poetry and uh, literature and ideas and being good to the environment, taking care of the environment. Would you see yourself as a storyteller now, John? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My stories are tr true, <laughs> but they're still stories. And I like to, yeah, I like to write as a storyteller. I, you know, this new book uh, that I'm coming out next has a lot of research put into it about uh, that I did about uh, China and so forth. And, and, but I like to wrap the stories around that because I think it's, you know, if people listen to stories and if you can combine facts with stories, that's the most powerful thing to simply feed people yeah. a lot of facts. That's boring, you know, but to feed facts with interesting, exciting stories around them, uh, that gets mm. to people. John, you list many things that people can do right now to help slow our, or maybe end our rush to destruction. So is there any one of them that's more important than the rest? Yeah, I, I think everybody, as I said earlier, has a role to play, and it, it, it's it's an individual thing. So there's certain things we can all do. We all know that. We could, you know, we could we can stop using as much petroleum, you know, we can we can eat better. We can we can we can stop eating meat <laughs> or reduce our meat consumption. We know that that that, that that's uh, bad for the environment. Uh, and uh, there's there's uh, many things like that we can all do in the way we shop and so forth. Uh, and something else we can all do: we can all be part of consumer campaigns to recognize that corporations hold the power. But they depend on us to buy from them and to invest in them. And we can all be part of consumer campaigns that say, hey, hey, corporate X, I love the products you make, but I'm not going to buy them anymore until you clean up the pollution you've caused or pay your workers a fair wage. And we can all 
be part of the consumer movements. But in addition, and I talk about in the book, five questions we can each ask ourselves and answer. And, and they're for individual things. And the first one is, you know, what do I most want to do for the rest of my life? For me, it's writing. And how can I do this in a way that will uh, help transform the death to a life economy? Well, I can write about such things. Well, what's holding me back from doing that? Oh, I don't have enough time to write every day. You know, and so the fourth question is, and when we change our perception about that, how does that change things? So I, my perception then would say, hey, you know, I could stop watching television for an hour, four nights a week and write instead. And that changes the things. And then the fifth question is, what actions do I take to make this happen? And for a writer, you got to write. <laughs> you got to write. And, yeah, so I think every one of us, a carpenter, I have a carpenter friend who, who has asked the same questions. I love to work with my hands and wood. Uh, how do I do this in a way that's going to help the, the change the death economy? Well, I use con uh, sustainable materials. What's holding me back? My clients may not want to pay the extra price for the sustainable materials. If I change my perceptions, how does that change things? Well, I can tell my clients it's not a cost. They're investing in the future by paying a little more. That's an investment. And then what do I do? Well, every day I build with these things and I tell my clients, look, I'm making the world a better place for you and your children. doesn't matter what you do with your parent, teacher, plumber, whatever it is, you can apply these same questions in your life. John, I recently visited Melbourne, which is Victoria's capital city of a couple of million more, more, more people. And what you describe as the death economy was booming. So how do we slow that or how do we restructure the place? Well, it starts by changing the perception of what it means to be successful human beings. As long as we define ourselves in terms of materialistic success, we're going to have this problem. You know, as long as we, we honour the people in Melbourne that are making the most money, as long as they're the ones that are on the covers of magazines, uh, business magazines and so on and so forth. As long as as long as we, we, we go out on the street and say, "Hey, that guy owns a, a hundred thousand dollar car," uh, isn't he lucky? I want that. Uh, we're in trouble. But when we start turning this around and and say things like, uh, well, "Well, let's put on the cover of the Fortune magazine, uh, Robert McLean. Uh, let's let's put people on the cover that are that are working hard to change." The world and make it a better place when we really start uh, buying into the perception that our heroes are the people that are working to make the world a better place not not the ones that are working to make money or the most money and putting others down in the process what impact do you think the existing economic system has on our mental health devastating you know uh, we're, we're devastated. You know, we've got tremendous mental health problems. And as far as we can see, the wealthiest countries have, to some degree, the, the worst mental health problems. It's, it's hard to measure it in some of the, the lower income countries. But we know that in countries like the United States, that uh, is, uh, there's huge mental health problems. And, uh, you know, we've this whole idea of competing to make more money and the idea that in order for me to win, somebody else has to lose, uh, that's not a healthy attitude to, to have. And as you know, Robert, I've spent a lot of time with indigenous people in places like the Amazon and elsewhere. I'm, I'm headed for the Amazon in August again. And uh, traditionally, and, and this is changing uh, because they're getting <laughs> educated to think like us. 
But traditionally, when I first started working with them and living with them in the late 1960s, uh, these people, there was, it wasn't competitive at all. It was like everything you do, everything for the community. Yeah. And if you're a good hunter, you hunt. If I'm not a good hunter, but I'd make good canoes, then I'm not going to go hunting every day. I'm going to just make a canoe. Make canoes, I'm, yeah. I'm going to make a canoe for the guy who's the good hunter, and he's going to give me food, <laughs> and you know, and 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 this is cooperative attitude of what we do, we do for the community. So why I mean, are you going back there in August, John? Well, I take a group for Pachamama Alliance. I'm a co-founder of this nonprofit called the Pachamama Alliance, and the other two co-founders, Bill and Twist, and I, every year we take a, a group of people who are who who support our ideas and so forth. Uh, to uh, go visit the people that they're supporting and that they're working with. John, predictions can be the work of the devil, and if you don't, don't want to go there, that's fine. But where do you think we're headed? We say we, I say the world, I guess. Well, I like uh, you know the prophecies. Is that, uh, every every major culture has has prophecy. Uh, you know, people hear the prophecy of the eagle and the condor that came out of the Andes, or the Mayan prophecy of twenty twelve or this Jewish prophecy and there's the Islamic prophecy and there's a Christian prophecy and there's all these prophecies. And every one of them uh, talks about that we now have entered a period, they, they prophesize this period. Some of them go back thousands of years saying that we will come to this period now where it's crucial that we change our ways, that we all come together, that we have a change of consciousness of what it means to be successful humans on this planet. Uh, so if we don't do that, the prophecies say there'll be disaster, it'll continue. And we haven't done that. And so we've been getting a lot of disasters, haven't we, Robert? You know, <laughs> tidal waves and fires and, and hurricanes and droughts and uh, all kinds of problems. And these were, these were prophesized. They're happening. We're, we're, we're being shown that, 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 that the earth, the living earth is telling us, hey, this isn't working anymore. But the prophecies say that if we listen, uh, to the voice of the earth, <laughs> voice of nature. If we listen and we change, and basically if we move from a death economy to a life economy, the prophecies don't use those exact terms, but basically the concepts, if we make that transition, uh, we'll be okay. We'll, we'll be better off than we have been before now. And so I want to believe my, that, 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 that we will uh, change. Um, that's, that's, that's my prophecy. That's my projection that we will. But there's the other possibility. The other, the other projection uh, is that uh, we we won't change, and uh, things will get worse and worse and more and more drastic. John, your work and your writing resonates a lot with me. Is there something else you'd like to say about what your new book that's coming in February? Well, thank you, Robert. I appreciate that. I I think. Uh, you know, it's it, 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 it's it's looking at the third wave of economic hitmen, which is a bit, really the Chinese wave of economic hitmen, and they have a whole different philosophy. It's that they're going to they're headed for the same goal, which is dominating resources, but they have a very different philosophy, and it's an attractive philosophy to people around the world. And I, I outline that in the book. I won't get into it now, but it's there in the book. But I also think that the book comes down and basically says, you know, we all ought to feel blessed that we live at this time because this is the time of prophecies. 
And you and I, Robert, and all your listeners and everybody out there, we're in a great position that, yes, we're victims of the system, but we're also collaborators, and therefore we're the solutions. And so every one of us has the opportunity to work to turning this around. And, and again, in the book, I, I go into detail about these five questions I asked earlier. You know, what, what do I most want to do with the rest of my life? How One, how can I do that in a way that's going to transform the death economy to a life economy, make the world a better place too. And and three, what, what's stopping me from doing that? What's stopping me from realizing my dream, from realizing my mission? And four, when I change my perception, how does that allow me to move forward? And then five, what actions do I take? And I go into some detail and I think that, you know, the, we should all feel blessed that we live at this time when we can ask ourselves these questions and know that our answers will will send us down the path to having an important role in turning this around. You know, some of us may only influence one other person, or we may influence our whole family or our whole community or the whole world. <laughs> but every one of us has a role to play, and all of that's important. You know, your your role obviously is to to do to, to host programs like this and spread the word that way. And I think that's probably your love too. I think that's probably your your mission. That's what you most want to do in life. I, and 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 I, but everybody has that opportunity. This is a time not to waste our energies on doing things that we don't like to do that aren't bringing us satisfaction simply because we're being told that this is the Australian dream or the American dream or whatever the dream is. Oh, the dream is to get rich quick. No, that's, that, that's a lie. That's not, that's, I don't think that's anybody's dream. Ultimately. I don't think that's what people are looking for. They're looking for what the riches can give them and that's happiness and that's communication and that's connection with other people and with nature. Thanks, John. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. It's great. My pleasure. Thank you, Robert, for all you're doing. Keep up your great work. Thanks, John. That's wonderful. I feel rather special I was able to have a chat with you. And please, folks, make sure you check out his new book in February next year. It'll certainly be worth reading. We've reached the end of today's Climate Conversations, and if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with your friends. Until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle.